Welcome back to Death Walks With Us. I'm your host, Angela. First off, I got a new microphone. Yay! So your listening experience should greatly improve. And that annoying clicking noise should be gone. It's hard editing them all out. Plus now I can talk to you normal. I feel like I have to speak loud for that other mic for you to be able to hear me. So... Anyways, I have a lot to cover, so I'm going to jump right in. Today's episode will be the first of three on the Jonestown Massacre. Uh, word about sources and terminology. Besides public records, a lot of information comes from the mouths of survivors and documents found at Jonestown. I read some books and watched quite a few documentaries so far. The Road to Jonestown provided a lot of information for this episode. Uh, most of the documentaries and books really focus on the years following the move to California and not really the beginning. I read The Untold Story of Hope, Deception, and Survival at Jonestown, A Thousand Lives by Julie Skouros. So before I begin, I want to discuss the term cult. She refused to use the term unless it was in a source. She feels using the term, quote, discourages intellectual curiosity and empathy. As one survivor told me, nobody joins a quote, end quote. Nobody does join a cult. Nobody thinks of their cult as a cult because of the stigma around joining cults. But why is there that stigma? It, per it probably has to do with Charles Manson and Jim Jones. There are many definitions for cult, but one is a great devotion to a person, idea, object, or movement. So let's examine Jim Jones and his followers to see if cult is an appropriate term. I know we should be sensitive to some of the survivors, but we need to use appropriate terms to help people have the language and ability to recognize potential harmful situations. But by not using certain language, it deprives people of that language. Jim Jones was a monster and people followed him. I do want to be sensitive to survivors, but it is hard to understand why they followed him. That's why we are here. But it is really haunting to hear what the survivors have to say. I think to know Jim, we first must look at his parents. Lynette Putman was born on April 16, either in 1902 or 1904. She is not consistent with the year of her birth, nor the location of her birth. She had a darker complexion and would claim to have native blood, though there are no records to support this claim. She would have a lifelong trait to defy whatever was expected of her. She had a firm belief in spirits and reincarnation. In 1920, she married her first husband at either 16 or 18. This marriage lasted two years. Then she married her second husband, on March 12, 1923. That marriage ended three days later. She wanted to marry a man from a well-to-do family, and she found him in 1926. James Thurman Jones was born in October 1887. His father owned a lot of farmland and wanted his 13 children to be successful. He would sell off parts of his land just to put them through college, even his daughters he helped put through college. Eleven of the thirteen were successful. One fell to gambling and drinking. The other, Jim, went to war at thirty and came back disabled. He had not gone the college route but had worked with his hands before the war. In the war he was he was put on the front line in France. If you don't know much about World War One, many in the front line were exposed to mustard gas and Jones was there and came home with permanent lung damage. He received only 30 a month in a military pension. That was not enough to survive, and he worked on road crews. While on one of those crews in Evansville, he met Lynette. No, wait, I think she was Lynette. Lynette, who later changed her name to Lynetta. She was 15, yeah, she had like a few different name changes. But in the end, it was Lynetta. She was 15 or 17 years younger than him. They married on December 20th, 1926. 
Even though he was disabled, he was from a prominent family, and yet she thought they would take care of her for life. That's not exactly how it went down. Even though her father-in-law could have afforded to pay out right for a farm, he instead made a down payment on it in Crete and left them to work off the mortgage. Most of the farm work was left to Lynetta as Jim had to continue to work to make ends meet. Sometimes he would be gone for weeks, leaving her all by herself on the farm. This area was described as being about a century behind the rest of America and probably one of the whitest areas you could find. The KKK that was forced out of the South made Indiana its foothold. It was very conservative and religious. Because of Jim's lung condition, Lynetta couldn't engage in long conversations with him and being rural America, neighbors were far and few in between. She probably deal, did feel some form of isolation, but I don't think she cared. She made no effort to make friends and would even curse and smoke in public. Women didn't do that, and that would make others hesitant to talk to her. Over the years, Jim's health would continually decline, making it harder to keep consistent employment or help on the farm. But then... The Great Depression hit. Jim's father lost most of his farm, though he still had a bit of money. He moved to town to live with one of his kids. Lots of young couples lost their farms and had to move into town. Lynetta didn't think Jim's family liked her, which they did, and she might have feared that if they lost the farm, as it was becoming obvious they probably were going to, they would let him move in with them and leave her to have to join soup kitchen lines. So even though she never wanted to be a mother, she had James Warren Jones on May 13, 1931. They were very poor when he was born. She was say before she got pregnant, her mother appeared before her in a feverish vision and told her she wouldn't die that she was destined to give birth to a child who would become a great man. James's birth was too much for the older Jim, who had a complete mental breakdown and had to be hospitalized for a few months. In later years, Jim would say his father was a very cynical man. Starting as a toddler, Lynette started telling Jim he was born to do great things and would be the greatest man ever. In 1934, they had to move five miles away to Lynn, a town where everyone knew everything about everyone else, and it was hard to keep secrets. Jim's family agreed to pay for almost everything, and Lynetta could stay home till Jim started school. Then she would have to work to help with the bills. Lynn had several churches, and religion was a major factor in life as conservative Protestantism reigned. And if you were white, it was a very friendly place and everyone watched out for each other. It was one of those towns where preachers would be allowed to go to the high school on Friday and give the students hour-long sermons about staying right and clean. Indiana may not have had a big black population, but had one of the biggest active Klan memberships in the country. In the 1920s, membership blew up just like the rest of the country. Because there wasn't that many non-whites, the Klan in Indiana focused on community. They advocated for better education and prohibition. Lynn was in Randolph County, and that stayed a dry county after prohibition ended. And people knew if you drank, and they looked down on it. So the town was welcoming to the Joneses, and this is where Jim Jones got his first taste of church. As his family was non-practicing, which that was a huge deal for a very religious community, Big Jim, being a veteran, was their saving grace. Lynetta didn't really fit in and didn't engage in much conversation. People thought she was taken on airs. She didn't feel there was anything to talk about with these women. They had different views. Big Jim's physical and mental health continued to decline, and his family would take him to the VA for emergency treatment. Also, it didn't help his lung issues that he was a chain smoker. 
Lynetta was considered scandalous because she drank, smoked, cursed, and wore pants instead of dresses. When Jim started school, Lynetta got work at a factory. She resented her working class life. She would make Jim a sandwich, one sandwich, and send him to school. Big Jim would go to the pool hall and spend his day there, drinking soda or coffee and playing cards. No alcohol would be served to anyone there. For some reason, Jim was not allowed in his home unless Lynetta was there, so we would wander the streets. Lynetta must have figured one of the other adults in town would look after him, and they did. He would get invited in by the mothers because they felt sorry for him and would feed him and would be all pl- and he would be all polite and tell him how amazing it was and how it was the best food he ever had, which maybe it was. Lynetta was not about cooking. Then Jim started hanging out with a kind religious lady across the street, Myrtle. She was known for giving pie to the transients who came through. Her husband was the pastor at the Nazarene church, and they took Jim to that church. Lynetta didn't care. It got him out of the house, and she didn't have to take care of him on her day off. Jim loved going to church, and he had a knack for remembering scripture. Jim then began exploring the other churches and eventually would join all five dominations in town and would attend multiple services every weekend. What Jim saw in these services was that there was one guy talking and everyone else was listening. One thing about this town was that everyone, even children, did what they could to fit in, to confirm. Jim did to some extent. It was like he had to be different. He cried a lot, which boys didn't cry. He swore a lot, and that made other boys uncomfortable. Plus, he was scared of fighting and would run away when boys wrestled. Oh, and the candy bars. Jim would steal them all the time from his door, and his mother would come in at the end of the week and pay for every single one he stole. She never punished him. She took pride in his daring. Lynetta wasn't really around and provided little nurturing to Jim. Maybe this was her way to compensate for a lack of affection. Jim was left to his own devices as a child. Even as a child, he showed the signs of what he was going to do in the future. There was a casket manufacturer in town. They were like the rest of the community and never locked their doors. And one night, Jim talked a bunch of kids into going into the factory and getting into coffins and staying in them. Some kids got scared and left. Others just got bored with lying in the coffins. And then there was a time when Jim claimed that he was gifted special powers by God and one day fastened a cape around him and jumped off a roof. He couldn't fly and he broke his arm. He also started going around and picking up dead animals and giving them funerals. He would make coffins and give them religious burials. He would get younger children to attend these funerals and they would be happy and an older kid was including them. When they want to leave because they didn't like the required obedience, Jim would scare them to make them stay. Eventually, they would stop going with him, but that didn't stop Jim. He'd do the funerals by himself. When Jim Jones was 10, America entered World War II. Then you know how children like to play war. As his schoolmates pretended to be the Allies, Jones wanted to be the Nazi. He was fascinated with them, but more so with Hitler. He studied Hitler. He was fascinated how he could stand in front of a large crowd and give these powerful speeches that caused millions to follow him. Jones idolized this man for his power. Jones couldn't get the older children to play Nazis with him, so he would make his younger cousins play. He would force them to march Nazi-style, and if they didn't do it right, he would take a switch and hit their legs. When his aunts found out, because he left them bruised, they put a stop to it. According to a childhood friend, during the war, German POWs were sent to Lynn, and when they got off the bus, one patted Jim on the head and said something in German. Jones yelled, Hail Hitler, after him. And Jim was impressed when Hitler committed suicide instead of being triumphantly paraded around by his enemies. Myrtle moved and lived in Richmond for a very short time before moving back to Lynn. 
But while she lived there, Jim went and stayed with her for the summer. Jim met another young boy named Lester, and they started going to a Pentecostal church. In documentaries, Lester thought Jim's behavior was strange. Every week, the preacher would ask anyone who wanted to be saved to come forward, and usually people went up, and that was it. They just went up once, but Jim would go up every single week to be saved. When Jim returned home, he started giving lectures on sex to his younger cousins. Now, they were farm kids, so from a very young age, they knew what mating was. But Jim went into more details and refused to say where he learned this from. But it was like he was obsessed with talking about it. Now, when Jim started high school, he was marginalized among his peers, but he still could elicit some sympathy from the adults, especially since there was a new rumor going around that his father was a drunk. And remember, drinking was not tolerated in this small town. But his father did not drink alcohol. His health issues caused him to act drunk, stumbling, staggering, and can't keep his balance. Jim would rather they think he was a drunk than know about his mental health breakdowns. In high school, Jim was different. He would dress in nice white shirt and slacks, whereas the other kids dressed in clothes fit for living on farms. Oh, and a self-important act. He would not talk to anyone unless he started the conversation, meaning he refused to answer anyone that talked to him first. Jim also took to carrying a Bible around with him wherever he went. Kids figured he was going to be a preacher and I guess encouraged it. At a prep rally, they had him conduct fake funeral for the other football team. Jim's mother, Lynetta, was miserable in her marriage. She would shout at Big Jim and she grew sexually frustrated with him because his medical conditions prevented him from performing in bed. So she took on a lover that lasted a few years until he moved away. Jim knew his mother had a lover, but he would always choose his mother over his father. Now, remember, Jim would attend different forms of services, looking for that sect that was right for him, and then he found it in Pentecostalism when one day a different form of religion came to Lynn. This was a apostolic church, a form of Pentecostalism. From a young age, Jim Jones had loved to preach, and there were stories that because he was good at it, he was encouraged by members of this group to preach. His mother would tell stories about how when he started having nightmares, she confronted them about it. She did not want him attending services, but this, like many stories, can be disproved as no one who attended this church ever remembers Jim being encouraged to preach there, nor ever preaching. By Jim's words, he had joined the most extreme Pentecostal church because he was accepted and they were the rejects of the community. He found acceptance there and love. Jim also began to notice how blacks were being treated. And like a decent human being, he didn't like it. While in high school, on the weekends, he would take the bus to Richmond um, they had some run-down poor black sections, and he would preach there about equality, how in God's eyes everyone was equal. This is where he found his platform that would cause many to flock to him. He preached about Christian inclusion, basically racial equality. A white male preaching in 1948 about Christian racial acceptance was welcomed by the black community that had suffered years of abuse at white's hands. Jim was hinting to people that his father was a physically violent, abusive man. Nobody really believed it. They did think he was a drunk, but from his staggering everywhere, no one believed he had the strength. And from his medical conditions, they were probably right. He probably lacked the strength to be physically violent. Plus, no one saw bruises on Jim, which, to be fair, a lot of abusers hit where bruises won't be visible, and Jim did not like fighting. But by, his, by this point in his life, I don't see Jim tolerating someone having that kind of power over him. Not like this. Plus, I see it more of a way to elicit sympathy, as he was known to do that. But Lynetta could no longer take it. Her lover had moved away, and now there was nothing holding her to Lynn. 
So after 22 years of being together, Jim's parents separated. Jim and his mother moved to where she worked, Richmond, Indiana, which was a very segregated city. At one point, half the white male population had belonged to the Klan. In 1948, Jim enrolled in Richmond High School. His clothing choice fit better here as kids dressed nicer than country kids. Jim didn't make many friends, but he did join a Christian youth fellowship. They would debate about the best way to live a righteous Christian life. Now, by this point, the U.S. had entered into the Cold War, so people have to be careful about mentioning certain things, and one is showing support for communism. These kids did not want a communist government, but they wanted their churches to adopt a Christian philosophy that mandated compassion and equal treatment for all and live by each according to the ability and need. They did not share that outside their group. To help it, his mother make ends meet, 17-year-old Jim went to work as an orderly on the night shift at the local hospital. He had to do some of the worst tasks, like clean up vomit, help move the recently deceased, and handle the disposing of amputated limbs. You can imagine working the night shift with little to no sleep should be hard on anyone, but not Jim. He demonstrated a remarkable ability to be able to function without sleep. Jones also took the toughest jobs when he worked, and he showed a deep compassion to those in the hospital. Jim graduated early from high school, not because he was extremely smart, but because Lynn actually had one of the best school curriculums in the nation and was way advanced than Richmond. The man who developed the curriculum was recruited to another state to develop the whole state's curriculum. Anyways, now Jim had to decide what he wanted to do and tuition would cost him. But Jim believed he was destined for great things and that would be just a stepping stone. In 1927, Marceline Baldwin was born to Charlotte and Walter. She was the oldest of three daughters, Eloise and Sharon. Walter and Charlotte were deeply religious and passed that on to their daughter. Walter had been a minister at one point and became involved in local politics, sitting on the city council. Sharon was 11 years younger than Marceline and had health issues, which Marceline was attentive to her and concerned about her. Even as a teenager, Marceline did not let boys distract her from her responsibilities in church. She worked hard at school and got good grades. When she graduated, she knew she wanted to spend her life helping others, and she entered a nursing program at the Reed Memorial Hospital. It was a federally funded program, so it cost her parents nothing, and she got to stay on the Reed campus. Her and her cousin were actually planning to move to Kentucky. Then she canceled at Christmas time. She had met a boy. That boy was Jim Jones. They met late in 1948. She was a senior nursing student, and he was an orderly. There was a corpse that needed to be picked up, and she asked for an orderly's help, and Jim was sent to assist. He acted very respectful and remorseful while helping to prepare the body. It was a young pregnant woman who had died. Jim even spent a few minutes with her family, counseling them. After meeting her, Jim made sure he was always around when she had breaks. Marceline was a good listener, and he would tell her tales about a, a horrible childhood, going hungry, being beat by a violent alcoholic father, and talk about how his mistreatment inspired him to work hard, graduate early, attend college, and put his faith in the Lord. Their son would say that it was Jim's talk of his religious background that made him attractive to her. There was a three-and-a-half-year age difference between the two. Marceline being older, Jim still wrote her. He told tales about standing up for the disenfranchised, one being that he had been on Lynn's basketball team and quit when the coach made racist remarks. Not true. Oh, and once walking out in the middle of a haircut because the barber made racist comments as well. After a few months, Jim started talking about marriage, and Marceline agreed. 
On June 12, 1949, Jim and Marceline married in a double wedding ceremony, along with Marceline's sister, Eloise, who married Dale. They couldn't afford to move into their own place, so Marceline stayed at her parents, working at the hospital, and Jim returned to school for the summer and would return on weekends and stay with her family. But problems did arise. It was the Baldwin's home, and they would speak their minds. And boy, did Charlotte. Soon after the wedding, she was saying how it was not Christian for people of different races to marry. Years later, exactly what was said is disputed by Marceline and Jim. Jim said she used some strong, heavy racist language, whereas Marceline says she didn't use the language, just said that it's not Christian for them to marry. What they agree on is that Jim would not tolerate that and packed their bags and left to his mother's house. Jim does say he told Marceline she had to choose, but Marceline says their parents would visit and he would just leave until they finally bent him. Marceline said there was no compromise in him. My question is, how is it not Christian for two people of different races to marry? If anyone can explain this logic from the 1940s, please email me at deathwalkswithuspodcast at gmail.com. I would like the 1940s racist logic, not the 2022 racist logic. Thank you. Soon they got an apartment in Bloomington and Jim finally told Marceline he did not believe in her God at all because a just and loving God would never allow such human misery to happen. They argued over this frequently and Jim would not yield. According to Jim, one day they argued over this while driving, and she said, I cannot take it anymore. You either change your ideology or get out of the car. And he said he did, and walked for hours until she changed her mind and bended to him, because as he said, I was determined that I wouldn't. Marcine led up on arguing with him over faith, and instead started considering divorce which some of her female family members talked her out of. It just wasn't done. Her cousin told her she'd embarrass her parents. But years later, her youngest sister Sharon divorced, and they took her and her children in. But Marceline stayed with Jim till the very end. So there are many, imagine if this didn't happen, what would have happened? I'm not going to do that. Because it could have still happened, but could have been way worse. Jim's second year of college did not go that well. And at this time, Marceline was able to talk Jim into attending Methodist service, which she was also able to get Jim back into her family's circle. Jim dotted on her grandmother, and that made an impression a young man showing such compassion and taking an interest in an elderly woman. Jim also took an interest in Marceline's nine-year-old cousin, Ronnie. His father died when he was four, and his mother was very unstable. He and his two older brothers were in and out of foster care and staying with relatives. Many times they were separated, and Ronnie felt alone and lonely. In June 1950, Ronnie was with a foster family when he suffered abdominal pains. They ignored it, thinking he was making it up. When he missed a family function, his brother told them why he wasn't there. Marceline realized his appendix had to have ruptured, and she and Jim rushed to the foster family and took Ronnie to the ER. It had ruptured. They saved his life. He returned to the foster family, but a year later, Jim and Marceline invited him to come live with them, and he did. He had his own room and a bike. Jim and Marceline tried to make their unit a family. They wanted Ronnie to call them mom and dad, but Ronnie didn't want to. Even though Jim was an adult and Ronnie was 10, he would go into graphic talks on sex. More than a 10-year-old sex talks should be. This is a reoccurring theme with Jim. He loved to talk about sex and would make many uncomfortable in the future. But for now, Jim increased Ronnie's sex knowledge that he gladly shared with his classmates. 
They were amazed with him how much he knew, but Jim talked bad about Ronnie's mother, called her a whore, and criticized her for living with a man outside of wedlock. He demanded Ronnie accept them as his parents, but Ronnie saw through this. Ronnie saw through Jim and thought he was two-faced. This 10-year-old boy was able to see through Jim, but Jim was still kind of young and hadn't fully developed his skill of hiding his true self, though he was good at it. James Thurman Jones died of respiratory disease in May 1952. No one remembers seeing Lynetta or Jim at the funeral, though she did file a widow's claim to his army pension. At this time, Jim attended some communist meetings. These groups were watched by government agents. Jim did not care. While these agents made others nervous, Jim would walk right up to them, introduce himself, and walk away grinning. They did not intimidate him. Then the Methodist Church adopted a new creed that fit more with Jim's ideologies about racial harmony and helping the poor. So he announced he would become a Methodist minister. This made Marceline ecstatic. Jim started going to black churches and their services. They did not have a rigid set of rituals and limited time so everyone went home early. People would get up and dance and sing. The services would go on for hours. And people seemed like they were having fun, that they actually liked it and were not doing it out of obligation. Though they were the only white family there, Jim was in his element and would actively participate. They didn't care that they were white. They were welcome there. In the summer of 1952, at 21, he became a student preacher at a Methodist church for lower-income white families. While a student preacher, a newspaper did an article on him about his accomplishments. They said he had launched a campaign to build a recreation center for poor children. They sang his praises, but it was lies. There was no campaign, and Jim was no longer attending college. The student position did not pay any money, and Jim had to take small jobs to make ends meet. And then in August 1952, after Ronnie had been living with them for a year, Marceline and Jim made legal documents for Ronnie's mother to sign so they could adopt him. They did not ask Ronnie. He did not want them to adopt him. Though he was grateful for them, he wanted to be reunited with his mother and brothers. As a sign of how Jim would be, Jim did not handle this at all. He saw this as a personal rejection and was pissed. He ranted all night long at Ronnie that he will regret this, that his mother was an unrepentant whore. To Jim, it was like if he did an act of kindness, that person belonged to him and they had no right to disagree about anything or leave him. Jim angrily kept at Ronnie all night and once the sun was up, took him back to his mother. But this was not the end of it. Ronnie's mother had seemed to be doing better and enrolled him in school. Soon after, Ronnie was summoned to the office because Jim had called and told Ronnie his dissertation had broken Marceline's heart. He tried to gaslight Ronnie into coming back and letting them adopt him. Ronnie refused. And then another day, Ronnie arrived at a family gathering, saw Jim and left, and Jim ran after him and chased him all the way home, where he was confronted by one of Ronnie's older brothers. After that, he left Ronnie alone. Soon after, though, Jim and Marceline adopted an 11-year-old girl named Agnes. There's not much known about her background. Jim began to try his luck in religious revivals and would attend others to study what worked and what didn't. He studied healings and casting out demons, and when he struck out on his own, he amazed audiences. Jim had an amazing memory and would dazzle them by seeming to know things he shouldn't. He did it by eavesdropping on conversations and just remembering them, but it gave the appearance that he was a mind reader, especially if they didn't see him around them. 
Word spread about his supposed power to read minds and prophesy. Jim was a showman, and he developed these skills to give the audience what they needed to get them to follow him. Now, as to the Methodist Church, there's a little conflicting information here. He was either asked to leave because there's accusations of him stealing money that he had no access to. These accusations may have been made up afterwards to separate him from their church, like saying we knew he was bad and we got rid of him. There's also other information that says he tried to integrate the white church, but like many that could tolerate the idea of racial equality in God's eyes, but did not actually want to be next to a black person and white families would walk out as black families walked in. In the end, Jim and the church parted ways. In 1954, Jim Jones decided to start his own church. He rented a storefront and called it Community Unity or Wings of Deliverance. I found two different names. Anyways, he went door to door of low-income black Americans inviting them to the church. The black community had black religious leaders who did meet with church officials. They could get meetings whenever they needed it, but it was just for show. White officials would listen to the black leaders' complaints, saying things will change, but nothing would happen. But the black leaders would feel like they accomplished something, and they mistook access for actual influence. Then Jones entered the picture, and would become a man who could influence. But we will get to that later. First, Jim needed a gimmick to get black people to come to his church. He would begin services by actually trying to help solve people's problems. They, as a congregation, would work on letters to get repairs done that were not being done because of their race. Jim's whiteness helped and things got done. That could have gone to his head, being able to help people that others were not able to. All of this cost money, and Jim went door-to-door -door selling spider monkeys he imported from South America for $29. That's $320.48 in today's money. He did have other part-time jobs as well. Jim wanted to grow his congregation, and he would not allow any outside help that could challenge his control and authority. Jim had a need to control and he had to build his new community himself. It is about power and control. People dotting on him made him feel powerful, and it will only get worse. Now, his campaign for racial equality attracted many people, along with his new antics of faith healing. At the revivals, he would attract thousands. It did frustrate him that it was all still too early to talk about socialism, but he could spread some of the ideas of socialism. But Jim was noticed by predominant preachers who offered to hire him and send him around the world to preach. Jim didn't want that. He wanted his own congregation to control, and he turned them down. He gave his wife some line that to cause social change, he had to stay in one place, and she was proud of him for sticking to his principles. I really think it's because it would have taken away a lot of control from him. He wanted to be admired, and he needed to build that. He grew his congregation by doing revivals and faith healings. He wanted more white people at his church, and he was able to get them through these revivals. He started getting die-hard followers. Jack and Ravina, Ravina, Ravana, Beam are two early followers that followed him to the end. Having such devote followers, he started using plants in the audience when he did his faith healing. People in the audience genuinely believed they had witnessed miracles. It was all fake. Jones was a showman. Now, faith healing is something I believe every Christian believes in. They offer prayers to God to heal, and many believe the more people who pray, especially the church leader, preacher, minister, pastor, etc., the higher chance the prayer will be answered and the person will be healed. For most, though, that is the extent of their faith healing, the power of prayer. 
but some believe that God uses the preacher to heal those worthy. Bible verses are used to reinforce the belief, such as Matthew 10, 8. Many will dismiss it as powerful, positive thinking. Either way, sometimes faith healing works to those who believe. It worked. Jim's congregation grew so much they had to move into a bigger building. They purchased a Jewish temple, and partially because it had temple carved out front, it was named People's Temple Full Gospel Church. That is without out the prosophy. It is supposed to imply not one people, but multiple people, meaning it consists of multiple groups of people, and also having the prosophy would imply ownership. Now, they got this temple cheap. Why, you may ask? Because of white flight. As black people moved into the city, non-black people did not want to be around them and fled the city, and churches would leave as their congregations left. That was what happened with the Jewish temple. They also practiced a redlining, making it illegal to sell or rent to blacks in these neighborhoods that whites fled to. Blacks had no legal choice but to live in overcrowded ghettos or pretty much completely flee the state. Why should you have to flee your state, your home? People's Temple was the first integrated church in Indiana. That message resonated with non-white Americans tired of Jim Crow laws. Some say Jim became a hero to the black community. Jim's son says he believes his dad genuinely cared about doing the right thing, but was always snarled by his deep need for approval. Jim wanted to influence policymakers, but he didn't have the know-how. He grew up poor, and this was a class of people he did not know how to influence, but his wife did. After all, her father was a councilman. She took the incentive and went to meetings and learned the ins and outs of issues and suggested solutions. Jim had no patience to sit silently at meetings, so only went to the important ones and would impress people with his knowledge and ideas, all that were fed to him by Marceline but it gave the impression that he was highly involved and knew the issues. He really just learned how to play the game, but it got things done. He was able to get improvements to black neighborhoods that black leaders had not been able to get. Marceline was instrumental in establishing their next source of income. When elderly black women could no longer care for themselves, they were put in run-down care homes. The Joneses got licenses and turned their home into a mini nursing home for their elderly temple members and were able to hire a white woman to help take care of their elderly friends. They formed a corporation and over the next few years took over a few nursing homes, providing jobs to people in their congregation. From this income, they opened a restaurant named The Free Restaurant, where if they could, people paid what they thought it was worth. They gave free meals to thousands of hungry people. Here, they could get free clothing if they needed it as well. Jones also purchased a time slot on a local radio station from 4.45 to 5 p.m. during the weekday, where they played a taped recording of him either offering a prayer, a short sermon, his thoughts or announced temple events. Jones' congregation was expanding, and now there were dozens of children attending services. Jones made them feel part of the service. He would stop in the middle and have the children get up and stretch. During Easter service, he would ask the children what they wanted to sing and then have the whole congregation sing their choice, mostly with Marceline's help. They developed programs for the youth, such as youth choirs and dan dance troops. Sometimes they would get on TV. Jim used this as a selling point to parents, as a means to keep their children off the street and involved in church activities. He would get local politicians to drop by. Jim encouraged his congregation to register to vote and to actually go to the polls. He wouldn't tell them who to vote for, but they knew who he favored, and their votes could help swing a local election. Jim copied the flashy preaching style of the Pentecostal preachers. 
including the shouting and banging on the pupillet. His faith healing would awe the room. One of these men he copied was Father Divine. This man had control over his flock. He got them to move into a farming commune in upstate New York called the Promised Land. Jim would use this name for his own farming commune. Divine developed some rigid rules, which included no sex, and everyone was to call him and his wife mother and father, and they gave everything to him. Jim wanted this and became a disciple of Divine, visiting him frequently just to learn all of his secrets. Divine was able to get thousands of followers, perhaps millions. Jim would adopt many of Divine's practices as his own. He wanted what Divine had. Jim was a very strong advocate for racial equality, and he wanted that reflected in his church. This is the 1950s with Brown vs. Board of Ed. There was so much backlash over forced integration, violent backlash, that even children were not immune from. This ruling did not change thing in, things in Indianapolis, as redlining had already sectioned off school districts by race, so kids were already going to schools in their neighborhood. What attracted some people to the church was seeing it broadcasted on Sunday TV, seeing black and white people standing side by side in the choir, singing together. One such woman was Heikathin, whose family fled during the Great Migration from Alabama when their son downtown had lynched a black male. Jones's integrated church was a welcome site for those who suffered the extreme racism of the South, Preaching for improved rights for women, blacks, and the poor in the 1950s was serious stuff. At the end of a sermon, Jones would move around the church, shaking black people's hands and looking them in the eye. Handshaking may not seem like a big deal now, but for a white person to willingly shake a black person's hand in public in that era spoke volumes. It just wasn't done. People have died doing that. Jones preached racial and gender equality. The church's biggest demographic was black women. They would become heavily involved in the church and volunteered for many of the church's outreach programs, such as food pantry and getting clothing to families in need. And they worked alongside white people. Jones tried to build a community. He organized activities and events to engage the congregation. In 1957, Jim's mother, Lynetta, moved from Richmond to live with the Joneses, finding employment to help them make ends meet. Lynetta knew Jim was going to make it big, and she wanted to be there to witness it. Marceline loved children and wanted more but she had health issues that would complicate a pregnancy if she was able to carry it to term, putting her life at risk. So they decided to adopt more. She was the one to put forth the idea of a rainbow family, adopting children of different races, which show they were advocates for racial harmony. They traveled to California, adopted two Korean orphans, two-year-old boy they named Lou and a four-year-old girl they named Stephanie. Their new parents adored them, so did the congregation. Lynetta, on the other hand, was less welcoming. But that's not because of their race. It was because they were children. Soon after the adoption, Marceline found out she was pregnant. Being a nurse, she knew how to watch herself. And as she put herself on bed rest, church members assisted with helping around the house and helping with her three children. Then in May 1959, there was a weekend trip to a zoo in Cincinnati. Marceline stayed home on self-ordered bed rest as she was nearing the end of her pregnancy. It turned out to be a rainy weekend with thunderstorms. Despite that, it was a fun weekend, and when they headed home, the Jones family rode in separate cars as members were helping with the children. On the way back, a drunk driver hit one of the cars killing Stephanie instantly. To make it worse, cemeteries were segregated and they could not bury her in a white cemetery. They had to bury her in a cemetery that
that they would not be allowed to bury it in. If Marceline died during childbirth, she could not be allowed to be buried next to her child because of their races. Three weeks after the funeral, Marceline gave birth to her only biological child, and they named him Stephen after Stephanie. And before I continue, let's discuss Marceline's only vision she ever claims to have. She claims that the night that they were away for the zoo trip, she was too tired to wait up for them and had fallen asleep. She was awakened by Stephanie outside crying for her to let her in. When she asked her child where her father was, Stephanie said, Oh, Boke needs a mommy and daddy. Marceline didn't understand, but she was tired and she put the child to bed. Jim, at that moment, was identifying his daughter's body and trying to arrange for her to be sent back to Indianapolis. He dreaded telling Marceline. At dawn, he headed home to tell her. Marceline refused to believe him and insisted she had put Stephanie to bed. They checked her room and no child was there. Marceline told Jim about her vision and the comment about Oboke. After the funeral, they couldn't forget this and contacted the adoption agency where they learned Stephanie had a sister still in the Korean orphanage named Oboki. It was a sign and they adopted her, renaming her Suzanne. Who knows if this was what actually happened or if this is the final product of years of retelling the story. But in the end, this is what Marceline swears happened. They were not yet done with their family. In either 1960 or 1961, I have read two different years, they adopted a baby boy and named him Jim Jones Jr. Jim tells his adoption story as basically his parents went to adopt a baby girl and he was there crying. His mother picked him up. Jones saw her holding a black baby and said, why can't we adopt him? The social worker said, because he's black. Jim insisted and they adopted him. This was the first white family in Indiana to ever adopt a black child and people were hostile towards them. I should correct that and say white people were. They would spit on a black child for being with his white mother for no other reason than being black. Some scholars say that it was all fake. Jim used this angle to get followers. They even suggest that his adopted children were just props to him. Now, his son Stephen says about the Rainbow family, everything was a big show to Jim. He could have adopted Jim and that was it and not tell everyone about it. Jim had to tell everyone about adopting a black child. Stephen claims his mother was more genuine in her actions, whereas Jim wanted a family that provoked. Along the way, Jones did meet other church leaders and they combined their small congregations into Jones. One of them suggested for Jones to join a major domination, the Disciples of Christ. With that would come benefits from the state, such as not having to pay taxes, meaning more money for programs. Jim called for a vote and after explaining the benefits, the congregation voted overwhelmingly in favor of joining. They were accepted with one clause. Jim had to finish his degree. Then he could be certified as a pastor. Jim wanted their benefits, but not the oversight. He wanted them out of his church. He also didn't want to share any of the collections and would lie that he had less attendees than he had and give them even less than those numbers should have produced. They knew, but they wanted his congregation for the work they did. That promoted their name. So they did not hold him accountable. This will be a reoccurring theme. The cause was more important than Jim's actions. Indianapolis had a human rights commission that paid 7000 annually. It was an easy position where you just presided over meetings that discussed things, but nothing really got done. It was considered non-prestigious, so it only had one applicant, Jim Jones. After being appointed, he began to change things, and for the better. If Jim Jones did not go down the route he did, he could have been remembered as a civil rights leader. He forced integration through nonviolent measures. 
many whites did not want integration because they believed black advancement was at their cost. Some whites believed that they lose when blacks advance. It's called competition. With equality, you no longer get the job just because you're white. You get it because you're qualified. Also, at that time, there was the belief that because communists advocated for civil rights, if you advocated for civil rights, you were communist. Only communists wanted equal rights. But to be fair, many civil rights leaders started looking into becoming communists or into socialism because they could not get equality under a democratic government. Jim Jones believed socialist policies would get equality between the races. When Jones was named commission director, in um, Indiana State passed progressive laws that the state had never known, laws that mandated equal opportunities in state employment and equal access to public accommodations. But this is for public, not private businesses. Jim started with small businesses with this integration movement and would not be confrontational. He would go to a restaurant, white-owned restaurants with his white friends and bring black friends. When they would politely refuse to seat them, saying they were all booked, as they never actually turned anyone away, just refused to seat them, Jim and his guests would wait and then come back the next day to speak with the owner. He would try to establish common ground. Being from a poor working class background, sometimes that worked. He would discuss how adding a new client base would boost profits. He talked how allowing black people in would increase business. He would also promise that they wouldn't come during their busy time, and it worked. Many restaurants finally allowed non-whites into their restaurants, but it didn't stop there. Jim would reward them by bringing members of his congregation during non-busy times and pay for meals out of church funds. So poor members could enjoy a free meal while successfully overcoming social barriers. He would also do free advertisements for these places of business. They finally saw how non-racist policies benefited everyone. He did it with other types of businesses as well. But not all would get over their racist ways and still refuse to allow non-whites into their business. Because Jim was so successful, he was even offered a $25,000 a year job to give up his Human Rights Commission position and stop integrating, which he refused. He needed the money, but principle mattered more to him. Jim even pushed to integrate workforces. Many of his congregation were impoverished, and he got them jobs. But he reinforced to them that if they messed up, it reflected on the church. But they were very grateful for these jobs and worked hard. Employers were actually grateful for these employees. Jim's integration practices worked. They were non-threatening to white elites, but they got things done. But this caused stress, and all the stress caused health issues. And in the fall of 1961, Jim was rushed to the hospital with abdominal discomfort. Now, I have conflicted information on this, but the one that makes more sense to me is what I read in A Thousand Lives, which is because Jones had a black physician upon admittance, they put him in the black ward. Once they realized that he was white, they tried to transfer him to the white ward, but he refused, and this caused successful integration of the hospital. The other was that he refused to be admitted until they integrated the wards, and that worked. Either way, because of his stay at the hospital, they finally stopped separating their patients by race. Jim refused to delegate to anyone. He had to be in charge of everything. He had to be in control. He had associate pastors and refused to allow them to do anything that took power away from him. But Jim was also starting to show signs of his desire to have complete control over his congregation. He made it a point of knowing each and every member and was like a chameleon as he tried to form bonds with each person, giving them what they as individuals needed. In return, he expected them to attend every service and participate in activities, plus volunteer in church programs. Plus, they had to follow socialist principles as dictated by Jones, even in their personal lives. 
He also begins to instruct members to watch other members and report back to him any transgressions. Here is his first so-called corrective fellowships, where people stood in front of their peers who were expected to criticize them for their wrongdoings. Some were like, this is not right, and left. And Jim would harass them with phone calls and letters, telling them they had to return. This was God's will. If there was something they did not understand, they just had to accept it and not ask questions. Quote, to challenge Jim Jones was to challenge the Lord and God respond accordingly, end quote. He was becoming obsessed over their loyalty to him. Jim wanted to keep his congregation loyal and he used the social unrest of the day to get it. He starts calling the police with fake assault attacks. He would report anonymous threats of violence against him and his family then one night, there were shots fired at his house. He called the police. There was a bullet hole in his porch. The police found it odd that none of their three dogs barked and that the angle suggested the shot was fired away from the house, not towards the house. But it served a purpose for him to claim that because of his views against oppression, he was a threat and had to be destroyed. But God protected him. Now remember, this was all happening in the Cold War era, and in the early 1960s, Jim Jones started claiming that he was having visions of mushroom clouds exploding over Chicago, wiping out Indianapolis. People were living in fear of a nuclear apocalypse. Many times there were incidents that escalated the threat, and the government didn't help with their propaganda. At first, Jones wasn't sure when it would happen, but it would be the 16th of some month at 3.09, either a.m. or p.m. He wasn't sure. Now, Jones needed to take a physician-ordered rest, so he used that time to find a place where he could move his congregation to be safe from nuclear fallout. He, vis he visited a few areas, one being British Guinana, Guinana, Guanana, Guanana. They were still in the process of separating from the British Empire, and then he went to Hawaii. Then in 1962, Jones read an article in Esquire titled, Nine Places in the World to Hide. So he moved his family to Brazil, with plans to eventually have his congregation move there as well. Another place on the list is California, and that would have been a better option but by moving them out of the country, it would have isolated them and increased his control over them. And that was what he wanted. But he did need to set up the place first. The Jones family lived in Brazil for almost two years, but from lack of knowledge of local language, Jones could barely support his family, and his absence was felt in his former church, whose members left. In Brazil, there were many missionaries down there, causing lots of competition for limited donations. Jim did try to help an impoverished orphanage, and this is where he supposedly lose sex for the first time for his cause. He claimed that a wife of a rich man would donate $5,000 to the orphanage, but only if he slept with her. He claims that this type of offer happened a lot, but he always turned the women down. But this time, after speaking with Marceline, who put aside her natural possessiveness and agreed with him that he should do this lady, his reasoning, even though this was prostitution, it was selfish of him to not do it because he was placing more value on his personal moral code instead of the orphans. But when telling the story, he always had to add that because he is an exceptional lover, she enjoyed it so much, the physical ecstasy. This was a sacrifice he was willing to do for socialism. Anyways, because he knew his numbers were decreasing and Brazil was a bust, Jones came back to his congregation, but he couldn't fully build back what was lost. While gone, Indiana made more progressive advances in equality, showing that they didn't need to rely only on Jim. Though this, of course, didn't last. After a few years, there would be a backlash, and elections put races back in office 
who reversed progress towards racial harmony. But before then, Jim decided there wasn't much more he could do in Indiana, and it was time to leave. But before he did, he started changing. The radio station stopped hosting his daily radio segments because his messages were calling the Bible propaganda and he was calling himself a prophet. In church, he began preaching that the Bible was the cause of all their problems. It was the root of racism. Jim did not tolerate any view but his own, and he was starting to imply that he was a vessel for God, that he was God. Whatever he wanted was right and must be done. He made no mistakes, and if something didn't happen like he wanted it to, it wasn't his fault. It was his followers. They were flawed in some way. And yet, people still followed him. Now, like Father Divine, he knew it was time to move his people. So he predicted nuclear annihilation by Russia with a date of July 16, 1967. He picked an American location in Northern California from that list to move so his congregation would follow. In the summer of 1965, they held one last service and afterwards headed to California. Dozens of families packed up and followed him, leaving family members behind who only saw church as a Sunday affair. Many wondered how their families could leave and began to worry about their safety following Jones. One can see this as his first test of loyalty from his congregation. Roughly 150 people followed him there. Most of them would continue to follow him in the years to come. And I am ending it here. There is a lot I cut out, but you can read the books and watch the documentaries. If you have questions, please email me or contact me on Facebook or Twitter. I think I will do a Q&A at the end of the third episode, or maybe a special mini episode. So please send in those questions. It will be about a week before I post the next episode. But thank you for listening. Oh, and don't forget to like and follow my podcast. Plus share it, especially if you think the sound quality is better. Until next time, the end.